turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We're glad that you're with us. Uh, We get together like this every weekend on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Alan Dempsey does our engineering, and Andrew Herdlisk is the producer of the show. Chad Bird is in San Antonio, Texas. He is our first guest, and uh, we're going to talk about his book with Baker Books. It's called Upside Down Spirituality. Chad, first of all, a nice welcome to you. How are you? I'm doing good, Pat. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, what does upside down spirituality mean? Well, what the book does is it takes a look at a lot of the, the cultural trends that tend to define the way that we view ourselves, our relationships, as well as our life in the church, and how these cultural trends and kind of proverbial maxims that are out there tend to give us a, a warped view of, of reality. And so what the book tries to do is to give us uh, a biblical perspective, which from the eyes of from the perspective of the world is an upside-down sort of way of looking at things. So what the book tries to do is to take that, that biblical understanding of who we are and how we conduct ourselves in relationships and who we are in the body of Christ, and to give us the, the proper understanding of, of how God understands us to be and how He would have us interact in the world. Well, there are nine interesting topics that you write about, so let's dive in. Uh, topic number one, the good news that God doesn't believe in you, the failure to believe in ourselves. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah, very often, especially around New Year's, we're told that uh, we should believe in ourselves and even that God believes in us. And what I want to do in that chapter is to give us uh, the opposite understanding. When we look at what we are in the eyes of Scripture, we understand that we're, we're flawed creatures and that we, at the time, don't even understand ourselves. We're driven by all sorts of of not good desires, often selfish desires, and so we don't find ourselves to be trustworthy, and we certainly don't think that God finds us trustworthy. Instead, our, instead of looking at ourselves, instead of trusting in ourselves, instead of believing that God believes in us, uh, we trust in the Lord, and we know that rather than Him believing in us, that He loves us, that He redeems us, and that He guides us into the life that He would have us live. Now we move to topic number two. What if I just want to be average? the failure to make a name for ourselves. Yeah, right away in the scriptures, at the well, for instance, at the story of the Tower of Babel, we find people wanting to make a name for themselves, to make themselves stand out. And of course, this is one of the, the supposed truths that we hear all the time in, in, in our world and our culture. But uh, what the scriptures would have us do, instead of focusing on making a name for ourselves, to find our identity in something that God has done for us to find our identity in Christ, and to rejoice in the name that He has given to us. So instead of always trying to put ourselves first, we do what Christ says, and we understand that we are we are servants, and our focus is not always inward on what we can get for us, but instead what we 
Now we move to the third topic, and it's called Go Home, Heart, You're Drunk, uh, the Failure to <clears throat> Follow Our Hearts. Yeah, the uh, the heart is a, is a very deceitful guide. Uh, the, the scriptures describe the heart as deceitful above all things, so it certainly isn't a trustworthy guide to lead us into doing and thinking the right sorts of things. I mean, of course, in our, in our hearts, there sometimes are good desires, but uh, those good desires are always mixed in with a potpourri of bad desires. And so instead of following our hearts, we follow the Word, which, as Scripture says, is a, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, because if we follow our hearts, very often they're going to lead us into destruction, into selfishness, into all sorts of things that keep us from living the life that God would have us live. Uh, now, the next topic, my guest is Chad Bird from San Antonio. Um, he has written an interesting book with uh, Baker Books. Uh, the fourth topic, Chad, super moms, uber dads, and other people who don't exist, the failure to be a perfect parent. I think if there's anything that parents struggle with these days, it's the it's the call for a kind of perfectionism. Like you have to do everything perfect for your child, create the perfect environment for them, find the perfect school, protect them from anything that might go wrong, anything that might be deemed a weakness. And when parents live under that kind of pressure, it produces continual guilt and shame and worry and anxiety. And it's not good for the parents, not good for for the children either. So. Instead of focusing on that, we just focus on the simple things, the things that parents have been doing for, for all ages, make sure we care for our children, that we teach them, that we guide them, that we let them make mistakes on occasion and learn from those mistakes. So rather than being these perfect parents, which don't exist anyway, we strive to be loving parents who emulate our loving and perfect Heavenly Father. Why do you think parents struggle so much? What's the, what's the deal here? Well, I think part of the problem is, as my friend David Zoll likes to say, that the problem these days is not that we are not religious enough, but that we're actually too religious. And one of those religions is kind of the religion of family or parenting. It's this idea that we find our meaning and identity in what we do in raising children or being spouses or whatever it might be. And that's always a dangerous place to be, because when we're creating our own identities, we're creating those out of out of weakness and sinfulness. And so we, as parents, need to live in forgiveness and to provide a model of grace and mercy for our children. Our children are going to encounter all sorts of laws and rules and requirements in life, uh, most of which, in one way or another, they're going to fail at. One of the best things we can do for our children is to give them mercy, to give them grace, to give them love, because that is a rare commodity in today's world. My guest is Chad Bird. We're talking about his book, Upside Down Spirituality. Chad, the uh, fifth topic, my altar has a diesel engine, the failure to search out our calling. What does all that mean? Yeah, well, I'm I'm bivocational. I, uh, I write, and I travel around the country speaking, but Monday through Friday, most of the time, finds me behind the wheel of a, of a diesel truck. I'm a truck driver by day, and so the way that's the reason that chapter is titled what it is. My altar has a diesel engine. And by that, I mean that in everything that I do in my job and everything that, that other people do in their job, whatever their calling might be, they understand themselves not only as a child of God, but also as a priest. And so just like an Old Testament priest would serve at the altar, 
So we understand that whatever our callings might be, that those are actually altars. It might be a desk. It might be a workbench. It might be an engine that someone's working on. It might be a school classroom. But whatever we're doing as Christians, we're doing as priests, as those who are sanctified by God and called to serve others in love. And so whatever our callings might be, as fathers, as as husbands, as mothers, as wives, as teachers, what, whatever whatever God has placed us in, whatever calling God has placed us in, that's where we serve. And so we serve in, in sacrificial love as those whom God has called as his priests. My guest is Chad Bird uh, from San Antonio, Texas, served as a pastor in the Lutheran Church in Missouri Synod, uh, an assistant professor of Hebrew theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, and as a guest lecturer at Lutheran Theological Seminary in Siberia. Tell me about that experience, Chad. That was a fantastic experience. I I served over there two different times, uh, teaching in a very small seminary in Novosibirsk, which is in in the heart of Siberia. I was there the first time in the dead of winter, so that was certainly an interesting experience to be in Siberia in winter. But it was a it was a great opportunity for me to get to know the Russian Christians who were there and the struggles that they faced, as well as just the incredible zeal they had for getting the news good news of Christ out there to that country, which of course so long had suffered under this dark cloud of atheism and, and communism. So it was a it was a very invigorating experience for me to see what God was doing through His church there. Did you feel safe? I did. Most of the time, I felt very safe. Of course, I had some I had students with me uh, who knew the culture, who knew the language, and so I never went anywhere by myself. They were always there with me to kind of uh, make sure make sure that I was okay and make sure that uh, that uh, I was going to the places I needed to go. And just were ended up being really really good friends and and brothers in Christ. Too. Chad Bird is our guest. We've got another segment with Chad. Stay with us. We're talking about his book. Upside Down Spirituality. Uh, This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. We will be right back. Chad Bird is with us. He's in San Antonio, Texas. His book is out with Baker Books, Upside Down Spirituality. Chad, we have arrived at your sixth topic. Love will not sustain your marriage the failure to find our soulmate. Tell us about that. Very often we're told that there's that one special person out in the world who is just for us, that soulmate that we have to find. And part of the problem is that is, first of all, soulmates don't exist. And so we're, we're on a, a vain quest to find that one particular person. But I think what's behind that, behind that particular quest, is this idea that we need to find someone who is our perfect complement, the one who's going to perfect us, to give us everything that we that we need in life, the meaning for life, a reason for going on. And the problem with that is to, to, to place that kind of pressure on a person is not to expect them to be a spouse, but expect them to be some sort of God, because no one can provide those, those qualities for us that we need except for God himself and Christ. So rather than looking for a soulmate, we look for someone who, of course, is, is compatible with us, who shares our values, our, our worldview, but we don't look to them to complete us in the way that only Christ can complete us. And the second part of that chapter, about love not sustaining our marriage, that's, that's taken from a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a marriage sermon that he preached, where he said to the couple that, henceforth, 
it won't be love that sustains your marriage, but marriage that sustains your love. Anyone who's been married longer than two months realizes that there there are times when there's problems that crop up, sometimes very serious problems. And if we didn't have that bond of marriage, if we weren't living, as it were, in the house of marriage that God has created, it would be much easier to just simply walk away, to throw in the towel and go find someone else. So what marriage does for us is it creates, it gives us this God-created house of marriage in which we live, and that bond that God has created keeps us together through those trying times so that love has a chance to grow strong once more after we've gone through those, those struggles that we face. So rather than focusing upon what we do in order to sustain our marriage, instead we focus upon what God has done in putting us together in marriage. And within that God-created structure, we strive to live faithfully and lovingly as husband and wife. Having uh, explained all that to us, uh, do you believe that there are many people uh, we could be compatible with in marriage? I do. Yeah, I mean, and we see, of course, this, this happens in the lives of many people. They get married, and maybe their, their spouse passes away, and then uh, they later find someone else, and they marry that person, and maybe they have two happy marriages in life. I've known people who have uh, older people who have lost two spouses and married a third time, and they were happy in their third marriage. So it's not as if there's just that one person in particular that God has created for us, and we have to go out into the world and find them. Instead, we find someone that, uh, as I said earlier, that, that shares our values, our outlook, and we build a build a life together with them. So it's not just like one person who's meant for us. Instead, it's that person that happens to cross our path, that we get to know, that we get to love, and that we're willing to commit our lives to. Well, Chad, it's time to move on. And uh, now I'm going to ask you to talk about number seven, building walls and digging moats with a question mark. The failure to separate ourselves, uh, what does that mean? I think there's been generally three different ways that the Church has approached its relationship to the world over over the centuries. One has been kind of an isolationism. You can think of the Amish, for instance, those who try as much as possible to separate themselves from the world, to, to build these walls and to isolate themselves into enclaves where they live out their Christian culture. The other extreme has been basically to conform as much as possible to the world, and in those cases, the Church ends up adopting a lot of the world's modes of thinking, and the world ends up kind of shaping the Church more than the Church ends up shaping the world. And what I'm uh, what I'm arguing for in that chapter is a different approach, uh, a middle-of-the-road approach, that's uh, following the example, basically, of, of Israel when Israel was in Babylon after they were exiled there in 586 B.C. So they were they were living on foreign soil. They uh, could not return to their homeland, but the prophet Jeremiah told them to build houses and plant vineyards and be ready to be there for a long time, and to to pray for the cities in which they live. And we're kind of in a Babylon. I mean, we are, uh, the New Testament describes us as foreigners and aliens. It's often said that we're in the world but not of the world, and our citizenship is in heaven, our true king is Christ. But we're also citizens of this world, and we're expected to conduct ourselves as civilians here. So how do we do that? Well, we I, the way I say it in the book is that the only way that we can live in these Babylons is when we have a Jerusalem passport in our hearts. That is to say, the more that we understand who we are as God's creatures, 
and who we are as those redeemed children of God in Christ, the more that we immerse ourselves in those God-given realities, the better we're equipped to conduct ourselves in the world. And sometimes that's going to mean saying no to the world, because what the world wants us to say and believe is, is contrary to what God has said to us. But very often that means simply living a life of service and sacrifice and whatever civilian place that, that God has put us. Of course, there's times when that's difficult, uh, but that's life in this world. So I think that's, that's what I'm marking in that chapter, is the Church should understand itself as God's outpost in this world, where we interact with the world, and we are citizens of whatever country we're a part of, but what, more importantly, who we understand ourselves really to be as citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. Chad, I want you to explain your eighth principle. There's no such thing as a personal relationship with Jesus the failure to have a private faith. Yeah, this will not perk up uh, some ears, because we're, at least since the 1960s, we're used to hearing a lot about a personal relationship with Jesus. Let me tell you, first of all, what I don't mean by that. I don't mean that somehow God doesn't deal with us as individuals, or that as individuals we should pray and read the Scriptures and do things such as that. Of course we should. Uh, but what I'm arguing against there is this kind of hyper-individualism, which of course is everywhere in our culture, and which has pervaded our understanding of how we interact with Christ. This hyper-individualism would kind of be just a, a me-and-Jesus kind of Christianity, where we don't think that we have to have any connection with the body of Christ. So by a private faith, I mean a private uh, a faith that doesn't see itself in connection with the broader body of Christ. It doesn't think that becoming part of a congregation is important, but thinks all it really needs is just a private relationship with Jesus. What the New Testament calls us to is the exact opposite of that. We understand ourselves to be part of the body of Christ. That's where we receive our encouragement, and that's where we encourage others. So you, you never see a finger just alone or a foot alone. Of course, these are always part of the body, and it's like that with the Church. If you're in the finger of the body of Christ, the foot of the body of Christ, or wherever you're at in the body of Christ, you're part of a greater reality. And God deals with us both as individuals as well as those who are part of that body of Christ. So it's it's an argument against this kind of hyper-individualism that's so rampant in our society, and that has affected our understanding of what it means to live as Christians. When you write about the church of the St. Big Box, the failure to embrace bigger is better, uh, what do you mean by that? Well, especially in America, we, uh, we just accept it as, as, a, as an unquestionable truth that bigger is better. It doesn't matter if we're talking about business or homes or, in some cases, churches. You see people that, for instance, will drive by 20, 50, 100 churches that are even part of their own denomination in order to make it to the megachurch in town. And I think that the appeal there is that bigger is better. The bigger the church, the better that church is going to be. So my argument there is, is that what God has called us to is not to worry about size, not to assume that either bigger is better or that smaller is better, because both of those are the wrong focus. The focus is not on how big the church is or how little the church is, but what is the Church doing? What is the Church preaching? And if the, the Church is preaching Jesus Christ in His life of righteousness for us, and His sacrificial death for us, and His triumphant resurrection for us, if the Church is preaching the Gospel, then the Spirit is going to be at work in that Gospel to do 
what he does in the life of church. He forgives our sins, gives us the righteousness of Jesus, he gives us the hope of, of resurrection. And sometimes that's going to mean the church grows, sometimes it might even mean the church shrinks, but that's, that's above our pay grade. All the focus on numbers and size is completely above our pay grade. That's the Spirit's business. At what God has given to us is to proclaim His Word, to proclaim His law and His gospel, and to trust that through that work He is going to do what He has promised to do. So rather than focusing on size, instead we focus on fidelity, on giving those words to the people that God has given us to say. Chad, what do you write about in the epilogue to your book? The epilogue is, a, is sort of a, a summation of everything that's gone before. It's really a focus upon what Paul talks about in First Corinthians when he discusses Christ crucified, that God works through opposites. You wouldn't think that God would reveal his glory and his greatness and his love in a crucified man. If we looked at the crucifixion of Jesus, we would never suppose that we saw there the revelation of the glory of God, and yet we do. And so that cross becomes the way through which we view all reality, where God hides himself beneath his opposite, where he hides himself in these upside-down, backward sorts of ways. And we understand where God hides himself when we, when we spend time in the Scriptures, when we're in his Church, when we understand who he has created us to be. So this cross-centered life in which we understand everything about our life in the world through the crucifixion of Jesus, that's the, the focus of that epilogue. And Chad, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I want you to expand <clears throat> on Acts 17.6, which is a big part of this book. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Uh, where does Acts 17.6 fit in this book? Yeah, Acts 76 is really where I got the, the idea for the title about upside-down spirituality. Uh, Paul and his companions were preaching the gospel, and they were, they were accused in that city of coming there to do what they were doing everywhere, to turn the world upside down. And I think that's one of the things that the Church has forgotten. We've, we've gotten too comfortable. We have, as I mentioned earlier, we've gotten too cozy with the world. We've let the world and all of its various secular religions define for us what truth is and what and what truly what truly matters. And instead we've forgotten to focus upon what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And when we're doing what Paul did in traveling around and talking about Jesus and talking about what he's what he's done for us, that's going to flip everything upside down in, in people's lives. When you when you really encounter what the grace of Christ means, what he's done for you and what it means to live in this world, then all of a sudden everything that was once accepted as true is questionable, and things begin to turn upside down. Now, the irony is that when we see things turned upside down from God's perspective, they're now right side up, because he's, he's creating us to be new people. He's creating new hearts and new minds within us. And when that happens, we begin to understand what life is really all about from God's perspective, and not from the perspective of the world. Chad, uh, what do you want our listeners to walk away with now? How, how does your book impact us for the rest of our lives? The main thing that I want the, the readers of this book to walk away with is that, first of all, they are loved by God. 
And it doesn't matter how messed up they are. It doesn't matter how many times that they have ruined their lives or what they're going through right now or how they might deem themselves unworthy of God's love. He loves them. He has sent his son to live and to die for them in order to give them new life. And this new life is theirs by faith. And this new life is an upside-down sort of life. It's a backward sort of life. But the more that we immerse ourselves in the life of Christ, the more we realize that that is actually where where joy and meaning and identity are to be found, not in ourselves, but outside ourselves in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Chad Bird has been our guest from uh, San Antonio, Texas. Chad, many thanks. I'm so glad that we could hook up here and uh, talk about your book and particularly... Uh, the insights that you shared with us about your time in Siberia. Boy, oh boy, that uh, that uh, got my goosebumps up. So, uh, that, yeah, it was it was a fantastic experience. One of those life changing uh, opportunities for me. Folks, you're listening uh, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. <clears throat> the station, of course, ninety four point nine FM and AM nine fifty. The Word. Uh, We get together like this every weekend and always have a series of very, very interesting guests. So stay with us. We've got more right after these messages, folks. Chad Bird, our guest in that first segment, talking about his new book, Upside Down Spirituality, uh, a Baker book. And and, uh, a Baker book for uh, talk number two here, folks. Nelson Searcy is with us, co-author of The New You. Uh, Nelson is the founding and lead pastor of the Journey Church. He's in Boca Raton, Florida. Uh, Nelson, welcome. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great, Pat. Thank you so much for uh, the opportunity to be with you. This is very exciting. Well, I'm eager to dive into this book. Uh, there are uh, 19 topics that you uh, address. Uh, let's get started. Uh, the first topic I want you to explain to, to us is this whose you are, opening up with God about your health. Uh, tell us about that one. Well, you know, Pat, this really kind of sets up the, the why behind the book. Uh, the book is The New You, and uh, my publisher, Baker, which uh, I know you work with and, and the previous authors yes. that you've had, uh, many of them have worked with Baker. Uh, they approached me about doing a uh, basically what they called a spiritual diet book, and uh, they wanted uh, a diet book with a little bit of a spiritual twist, and uh, I'd written on that for other areas and different places before, and they said, we want you to take your systematic approach to life and developing systems in your personal life and, and apply that in this big area of physical health. And I said, I- I'm interested in doing that, and I think it could help some people, but I have to confess, my bias is that you have to start with the spiritual first before you go to the physical and I, I fundamentally believe that the number one reason so many diet plans and so many health plans fail is because they don't understand right from the, the start that dieting and physical health, these are spiritual issues. And so if you're going to mess with your creation and get your creation in good health, you have to first present yourself to your creator. And so that's really what this opening chapter is all about. It's just an attempt to say to anybody, whether you're a, a longtime church member, a, a longtime follower of Jesus, or maybe a, a new follower, or maybe someone who is still in the process of considering their faith, to realize that uh, dieting and health 
And then, of course, we get into comprehensive health later in the book. But to realize that is first and foremost a spiritual decision that you have to make. And until you get that right, nothing else really falls in place. And that's why there's yo-yo dieting and all of that kind of stuff that's out there in the diet world. Now, get to the second topic with us. Drop the excuses, shifting focus from difficulties to benefits. Well, you know, part of, uh, part of the problem uh, that many of us have in, in dealing with our weight and dealing with our health, and I want to be clear, this book is more comprehensive than just uh, weight loss or, or just physical health, but that is the felt need that so many people approach in, in coming to the book. And then once we deal with the physical, I do get into uh, the mental and the emotional and some of that. But for a lot of us, including me, and, and you know, part of this book is my own personal story of, uh, of living an unhealthy lifestyle for almost a decade, being 40 uh, to sometimes 50 pounds uh, overweight beyond where I should have been, is that uh, in order to maintain that uh, unhealthy lifestyle, uh, we create um, we create sort of uh, 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 walls or we create reinforcements that promote that lifestyle. And, and a lot of times, you know, it's things like, well, I, I have genetic issues, and certainly in 10 to 20% of the cases, that's how it is. Uh, we say I'm big boned. Uh, we make excuses such as my, uh, my work, for example, my work as a pastor and as a writer, it tends to be more sedentary than many of the athletes like uh, you work with. So I say, well, I just happen to have chosen a profession where I, it's hard to get a lot of exercise. And what we've done is we've created a wall of excuses that help us maintain the unhealthy lifestyle. And so what I try to do in this opening chapter is to confront those excuses just head on and to really shift away from the challenges that we face and help people see that no matter where you're coming from or what challenges you might face, there are opportunities and those benefits of health far outweigh uh, staying where you are. And, of course, that's a classic change principle that I've heard you talk about in many of your books that in order to move to a new place, we have to sort of let go of the old place, but also many times we have to learn to hate the old place in order to move and love the new place. And that's really what I'm trying to do, and drop the excuses. What do you write about with small steps, a simple process for becoming the new you? Well, this is really, uh, to me, foundational. Um, I'm a I'm a small steps kind of guy. Maybe that says more about me than it does about uh, about the book. But uh, you know, whenever you, you tackle a task, uh, and in my life, you know, I think about some of the bigger tasks that I've tackled, like starting uh, the church that I pastor, moving to New York City back in the day to start uh, the Journey Church, or even trying to write my first book as a guy who uh, made C's in English. Uh, my approach has always been that to tackle any big task, you have to break it down into, into small steps. And I just think about in, in my weight loss journey, uh, when I stood on that scale that day and I, I violated eventually my final rule, which I was 50 pounds overweight, uh, for me to think about losing 50 pounds, that seems so overwhelming. But I fell back on uh, something I'd learned in books, something I, I learned from other speakers, uh, even uh, folks like you, Pat, and books that, that you've written, that in order to take any major goal or to accomplish any major goal, 
you have to break that down into, into small steps. And what I try to do in the book is uh, I do challenge people to make some serious changes when it comes to their physical health, when it comes to their spiritual health, their emotional health, their mental health. But to do that, I try to give them these the small steps, little actions that you can take. And uh, this has actually been the area that I've received the most feedback on through Amazon reviews and through uh, some people that have written me through the book's website. And I'll give you one that uh, I think many of your listeners can relate to. One of the small steps that I encourage people to take, and I, I really enjoy teaching this small step in my in my live events, and it has to do with hydration. And uh, we all know that uh, a lot of times we we retain extra weight because we're dehydrated. It's it's a it's a real serious issue, and and athletes probably know this better than the general population. So one of the things I I teach as a small step is first thing in the morning when you first get up. Right beside your bed, I want you to keep a, a bottle of water or a, or, a, or a container of water in your, in your favorite water bottle or if you have to, you know, the, the, the plastic water bottles. And uh, I've, I've sort of moved to a little more eco-friendly in, in more recent days, but in, in the early days for this, it was that plastic water bottle, and I would keep it right by my bed. And the first thing I do when I get up is I say a prayer and I sort of try to contemplate on a scripture, but then right after that, uh, I would take that bottle of water, and I would just chug it. Now, Pat, I'm not much of a chugger. I'm not much of a drinker. I've never had any experience on that. But I will tell you, over time, you would have been impressed as how quickly I could chug that bottle of water. And then at the end of that, something about taking that, that plastic water bottle and crushing it and making that sound, it just sort of set me off on the right foot uh, physically. And uh, I, I've done that exercise and had fun with that in, in rooms of, you know, hundreds of people where when they show up, there's a bottle of water uh, at their desk or at their table for the seminars they're attending with me. Or we've even done it at our church where we've given out, you know, a thousand bottles of water and we have, a, we have fun right there in the service drinking that. And, and the, the, the small step is overnight when you sleep, your body becomes dehydrated. And so one of those small steps that you can take to set your entire day on a proper path for health is to guzzle quite a bit, uh, 16 fluid ounces, let's say, of bottled water uh, or water right at the beginning of your day. And that, that sort of small step, that small accomplishment right there at the beginning of the day sets you on the right track. So then what I try to do for each of these areas, uh, whether it's uh, big areas like uh, spiritual health or even mental health, uh, is I try to give just some small steps that people can take that, that compound day after day over time and help them build that deeper health that we all want. My guest, and he's interesting, folks. I'm looking at this bottle of water I have right now, 16. Chug it, Pat. Chug oh, it. I, I'm, I, I don't know that I can do it, but I'm sipping. I'm drinking. <laughs> By the time I'm through all this radio, I'll, I'll have it probably finished. But... Uh, Nelson Searcy is our guest. Now, Nelson, your secret sin, the spiritual impact of what you put in your mouth. Well, I'm a pastor. I'm a, I'm a Bible uh, student. You, you are as well as, as far as a Bible student uh, in that. For many years, I read the Bible 
And uh, I read the Bible from cover to cover uh, many years. And for some reason, maybe through my own uh, blindness or through some of those uh, uh, excuses that I was talking about earlier, I skipped over all of those passages in the Bible that had to do with the physical body. Now, I would focus on the passages that had to do with the extreme dangers of, of the body or maybe some of the extreme passages about, you know, sexual sins or, you know, the dangers of getting out of control with your body or things of that nature. But what I, what I tended to, to miss in, in my reading process was just how many passages in the Scripture talk about food, talk about what you eat, talk about your, your daily lifestyle. And of course, many of those we might look at and say, well, those are, you know, those are ancient commands, and we certainly live in a different day, and, and in some way that's true. But in other ways, uh, many in recent uh, days, writers beyond me, other authors have brought to light uh, the importance of the biblical diet that we might find in the book of Daniel, or certainly we've all heard of the Mediterranean diet, and that seemed to be the diet that so many uh, in the Bible uh, would have would have lived back in in that day. Uh, I was also struck by some of the uh, the physical impressiveness, if you will, of some of the key biblical characters. For example, there there's a passage in in the scripture where if you do the math, it appears that Jesus walked uh, somewhere over the course of of a one day period between seven and fourteen miles during that particular day, and and, and all of this got me thinking about. You know, if if the Bible lays that much at the feet of what we eat, if if behind what we see in Scripture is, is this physical health, where literally someone was physically able to walk seven to fourteen miles a day, am I doing enough uh, to apply that in my own life? And I begin to realize that I was too casual about my eating, that I was too casual about my physical health. And in this case, it was more of a sin of omission, if you will. It was just one that I didn't think about. It was one that I didn't consider. And so I I began to step back and think, okay, what is the spiritual impact of what I have for lunch? What what is the spiritual impact of an extra dessert? Or what is the spiritual impact of a sugary drink? Is Is that leading me closer to the lifestyle that I want and the perhaps the one that God created me for, or is it pushing me further away? And, and these are all decisions that we make in private. Uh, you know, no, nobody really stands over us when we, when we make these decisions. So I had a little fun calling it your secret sin. Hopefully that would sort of get people's attention. But it is something that we often choose to do in private. But the, the, the thing about our poor physical choices that we make in private is that they're very hard to hide in public because they show up on our waistline or they show up uh, in, in our extra weight that we carry around. And so these private sins of indulgence, particularly with food, are very hard to hide in public, uh, no matter how good of a tailor or how well cut our suit might be. And so I guess there really is no such thing as a secret sin, even if it has to do with chocolate cake or other things we might like. Nelson, tell us about eating for life, three small shifts in your diet that will make a big difference. Yeah. 
So as you as you think about make, making this shift, um, we, we make a lot uh, out of particular diets and diet fads and different things that come and go. And many of those, I, I think, are very solid. Um, you know, I, I've been impressed recently with uh, uh, the return to like the keto diet and some of these kind of things. But at the end of the day, uh, when you think about eating for life, uh, it really is about uh, cutting back on uh, the carbs, uh, cutting back on the sugar, uh, whether you choose to totally eliminate those like some diets do or not, but it's it's living within a reasonable frame of that. Nelson, we've got to take a break right now, uh, and then when we come back, I want you to pick up on that. Uh, my guest is Nelson Searcy, his book, The New You. Uh, this is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Uh, we'll be right back. Nelson Searcy is with us. The book is called The New You. And Nelson, just before that break, uh, you were explaining uh, an interesting topic, the three small shifts. Fill us in. Yeah, so just making making the point that, uh, you know, whatever diet you choose uh, and, and whatever fad diet there is, it really comes back to just some some very simple decisions about getting back to the basics when it comes to uh, our eating. And uh, one of the the difficulties that we face in our day is that so much of our food is processed. And one of the things I talk about in the book, and and we won't have time to fully explore here, but it's it's what I call eat living foods. Mm. And uh, and these are foods that I would say that if if your grandmother or maybe your great-grandfather uh, didn't see it as food back in their day, then maybe we shouldn't be eating it uh, today. And that has to do with uh, healthy meats. It has to do with things that were grown uh, from the ground. And uh, this, of course, has to do with healthy fruits and healthy vegetables. And then, as we were saying right as we went to the break, tying that in with easing back on uh, the processed carbohydrates, uh, particularly the white uh, poisons that are, that are there, uh, in the way of flour and sugar. And really, if you, if you move in the right direction toward living foods, uh, things that have been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and eating that type of food, and then cutting back on processed foods, and thereby cutting back on the white poisons of flour and sugar, those small steps can really begin to move you uh, in the right direction. Uh, Nelson, I want you to explain avoiding common obstacles. How to get ahead of what could hold you back. Yeah, as you get into this, you do have to think about uh, maybe why you have embraced unhealthy lifestyles. And uh, for most of us, again, this is not something that happened last week. It's a, it's a lifestyle that we've developed for a period of time. For me, one of the things that I had to realize in, in working on my own journey of health is, Pat, I was an emotional and uh, if I had a particularly uh, stressful day, and as a pastor and, uh, and trying to lead a, a church with all the demands of that, and then also you know, working with people and uh, different things like that that would, that would stress me out emotionally or get me physically tired uh, beyond just the, the normal day-to-day activity, then I tended to, to eat worse on those days. And I, and I realized that I was an emotional Eater, and I would eat uh, to sometimes comfort myself, and that was a, a real problem. 
And and I've also come to realize in, in talking with many, many others and teaching this to my congregation and, and having written about it in small ways before I wrote about it in book form, that this was a major obstacle for other people, that uh, we, have, we, we have learned to uh, satiate our emotions, or at least to press down our emotions through eating. And that became a, a very common obstacle uh, for that. Also, our body tends to resist. You know, our, the, the, our natural way in our body, and I might even strongly say our sinful way in, in our body, is our body wants to maintain. And uh, our body wants to store fat. Our body wants to maintain our weight or even um, pursue adding additional weight through these uh, appetites that we have for uh, sugary things or or fatty things. And so we face resistance in that way. And then for a a lot of people, they lack the family support or maybe a a small group or church support when it comes to uh, trying to lose weight. And then the last one I talk about is uh, the entire restaurant industry uh, is geared around uh, making you feel good about what you eat, providing super large portions uh, on your plate. And so that is something that we have to, to manage as, as well. And sometimes it's harder to uh, eat healthy if we're traveling or if we're eating out. And so I just try to bring to light these obstacles. And those are not the only four. Uh, each person might have to identify their own obstacles. But the first step to overcoming an obstacle, whatever area we face in our lives, is to identify it, to define it, and then to develop some small steps and eventually a strategic plan to overcome it. Now, uh, I want you to talk about this topic. Drink up water, weight loss, and how much you need. Uh, You've talked about that already. Anything more to add? Well, Hydration was probably one of the things that uh, I realized was so prevalent in people's lives. And for, uh, water, of course, uh, it really is uh, where life happens. Uh, to go to the biblical side for just a moment, uh, just like I was overcome by how many times the Bible talks about uh, the body, uh, it, it is also interesting how much time the Bible talks about water. And in, indeed, you know, Jesus referred to himself as the water of life. In that famous story of the woman at the well, uh, he, he said, you've come to get water that satisfies temporarily, but I am the water that satisfies eternally. That's sort of my translation uh, of that passage, or a quick summary of that passage. And, and I, I think it's interesting that Jesus chose to use the word water. Now, certainly, uh, for those of us that have been to modern-day Israel, or we know the the background of uh, the Israelite people in Jesus' day. They lived in a desert, and so water was extremely important. But even in our day, where we can walk over to the tap and have instant access to water, people are still living dehydrated lives. And in talking with uh, medical professionals and others, uh, the list of damage that dehydration causes in your body is, is quite extensive. Uh, Pat, it's everything from dry skin, which we might think is just something simple. But, you know, once you realize that you have dry skin, particularly on your fingers or your hands or feet, that is a sign that your body's dehydrated. Uh, Dehydration can lead to high blood pressure and uh, makes your heart have to work harder because there's less uh, liquid in your blood. It can lead to vocal cord damage. 
And for you and I, when we're in the speaking business and the talking business, uh, this, this is extremely important. And on down the line, uh, we could go of how the lack of water and how dehydration is hurting us. But then on the flip side of it, uh, when we are properly hydrated, and, and you know, just to say it, it, it may potentially be possible to drink too much, but that is such a, a, an insignificant worry that I, I really don't think you can, you can overhydrate. Your body has a way to generally deal with that very quickly uh, if it were to happen. But when you do properly hydrate, uh, it, you have more energy. That's what that uh, chugging the bottle of water in the morning is designed to do. I found as a writer, uh, and I write most of my books early in the morning. I, I'm not sure. I don't think you and I have ever talked about your writing process. But uh, when I write my books, I, I do it from 4.30 a.m. in the morning to about 7.30 a.m. Mm. And I found when I started doing the uh, 16 fluid ounces of water immediately upon rising, uh, within just a few weeks, I sensed that I had 30 to 45 more minutes of focus during that early morning writing time than I did when I first uh, went after the cup of coffee or, or went after some kind of caffeine uh, kind of drink. And, and we can find that throughout the day, that when we face that mid-morning drop in energy or you know, that proverbial afternoon sluggishness that so many people talk about, that that is often a sign of dehydration. Uh, and, and I could go on and on and, uh, about water because I, I get so excited about this. And the reason I do is because it's so easy. It's so easy for people to do to just keep uh, uh, a water bottle constantly full at your desk and ensuring that every 90 minutes or every two hours or at, at particular times when you're switching between meetings or shifting gears uh, in your workday to ingest a significant amount of water. And it'll flush out waste, it'll stabilize your blood pressure, it removes toxins, it reduces your chances of kidney stones. And if you've ever had a kidney stone, you know, that'll very quickly turn you into a proponent uh, of high uh, hydration. It, it improves your, your focus, it hydrates your skin, it makes you look younger, and I don't know, maybe it'll even grow your hair back. At least I'm hopeful. Well, Nelson, we have come to the end uh, but I'm going to take a huge, huge drink of water uh, right now. And uh, with many, many thanks uh, for joining us. What a, what a good visit. Nelson Searcy, the new you. Folks, we got to wrap up right after this. It's the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, <clears throat> 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Uh, we'll be right back to wrap everything up. Thanks for joining us, folks, here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, Chad Bird, our guest, in that first segment uh, from his uh, home in San Antonio, Texas, talking about upside-down spirituality. And then Nelson Searcy was with us from Boca Raton. We uh, had a good chat with him about his book, The New You. Uh, Speaking of books, uh, my most recent book is called Character Carved in Stone. It's about 12 benches at West Point in a little park called Trophy Point. 12 word, different words carved into those stone benches. Uh, I think you'll enjoy the book immensely. And uh, it's history, it's motivation, it's character building, 
the publisher is Ravel. Go up to Amazon. Good, good way to order books. We're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando.